Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Four times a year, Spirit in Action welcomes Peterson Toscano to sit in as our host for a day. I'm so very thankful for Peterson's work at Citizens Climate Radio, as well as all the other good work he does in the world. But I suspect that there are other great world healing workers, followers of Spirit in Action, who might be willing and able to periodically do the same from wherever they are around the country. So I encourage you to contact me via the email on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. Right now, I'm going to turn the program over to Peterson Toscano, Citizens Climate Radio, from over in Pennsylvania. Hello there, Peterson Toscano here from Citizens Climate Radio. I'm thrilled to be back as guest host of Spirit in Action. I love that I can drop in every three months. I get to share with you some of the moving and insightful people I meet as the host of Citizens Climate Radio. If you ever need to contact me, just email me info at citizensclimate.org. That's info at citizensclimate.org. On my show, I seek to move past gloom, doom, and hopelessness. There is good work to do around climate change. I highlight some of the people doing this work. The problem with the news is that we don't always hear the good stuff. Most people do not know that right now, in the U.S. House of Representatives, there is a Climate Solutions Caucus. This is a bipartisan group. Much like Noah's Ark, they are coming in two by two. One Democrat with one Republican. Right now, there are 60 members of the Climate Solutions Caucus, so 30 of them are U.S. House Republicans. In addition, states and local governments are taking on climate change. We are seeing a steady shift in energy production with great gains in renewable energies. This is going beyond individuals lowering their personal carbon footprints. We are beginning to see systems and industries change. Now, lots of people associate climate change with traditional environmental issues, like conserving wild spaces or protecting endangered species. But on today's show, we move the conversation to cities. We consider the environment in urban spaces. This is important because of a common misconception among some environmentalists. On today's show, we will explore the topic of environmental justice.
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, It is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Perhaps the next most segregated hour may be when people concerned about environmental issues meet. The international climate movement looks very diverse compared to what we see in many climate groups in America. The reality is there are lots of people of color in the USA concerned about the effects of climate change and our rapidly changing planet. So are there two parallel climate movements in the USA? And if so, what are the differences? How are people defining the word environment differently? What do people of color concerned about climate change and environmental impacts to their communities want white climate advocates to know? What roles do climate organizations with mostly white members play in environmental justice work? Today, we take on a big story. Bigger than any single extreme weather event, we explore the topics of environmental justice and climate justice. We look at how injustice in society, particularly in the USA, deepens suffering during a time of climate change. My guest will reveal how pollution and extreme weather in the USA have already harmed people of color, indigenous people, and people living in poverty. We will see how environmental justice affects people in the countryside as well as in cities. We will also hear about creative, strategic, and effective steps community members have taken to make the world a better and more just place. We begin in Harlem, in northern New York City. Meet Peggy Shepard. The co-founder and executive director of We Act for Environmental Justice, Peggy has been engaged in social justice work and environmental protection for over 30 years. What began as a local action to protect citizens in Harlem from pollution turned into a national effort to empower and organize low-income people and people of color to build healthy communities for all. Peggy did not set out to start an organization and a movement. This journey began when she won an election as a local district leader in Harlem. Which is like a ward leader maybe out in the West. It's uh, an elected position but non-paid, <laughs> of course. This was the late 1980s. A new sewage power plant had been proposed for her district. What initially seemed like a source of sorely needed jobs for residents turned into one of the nation's earliest successful environmental justice actions. So we thought the issue was jobs, getting people hired at the plant. But then the plant began operating. And we realized that it was a major public nuisance. Um, it had odors, and we were able to uh, also monitor the emissions and realize that the emissions were at a higher than regulated level. So we began an eight year organizing campaign to hold the city accountable. Uh, to make a long story short, we had 100 people coming out along Riverside Drive every month for really eight years. Everyone got really educated on the issue and on air quality impacts as well. We ended up suing the city and getting a million dollar settlement of our lawsuit from which we were able to get an amount to start the organization as a paid group. We were all volunteer. It also committed $55 million to fix what was a brand new plan. 
and we were able to hire an engineer to oversee the fact that it was fixed, you know, in accordance with the protocol that was established. So that was our first big campaign. But of course, once you see an issue in a community, you begin to really look around and see others. And so we also began to realize that we host over one third of the city's diesel bus fleet. And New York City has the largest bus fleet in the country. Those buses are housed uptown, often in depots that were crowded, so the buses were on the streets, outside of people's homes, outside of schools, idling. And of course, you know, idling of the emissions was very negative to public health. At the same time, we began to understand that we had all these air quality issues. So we reached out to the um, Columbia School of Public Health so that we could uh, find some researchers who might help us uh, monitor and better understand the health effects of air quality exposures. We did that and 17 years later, we're here today with still a strong partnership with the two Columbia Research Centers that have turned out incredible um, research looking at air toxins impact on um, the health of children and mothers in this community, looking at the uh, exposure of children to chemicals in their products, in their toys, looking at the impact of household pesticide use on respiratory health. Our research partnerships have been crucial in forming the underpinning of our policy campaigns to get the city to invest in cleaner buses, which they have done, and now every single bus in New York City is a cleaner bus, it's a hybrid. We have been able to pass legislation at the state legislature banning uh, flame retardants and certain chemicals in children's products. So we've been able to translate that research into policy that really works for people. Peggy and WEAC have been highly successful. So how do they engage local residents? And so we do that through organizing, through outreach of information. We do that through training. You know, once you identify leaders, organize people to let them know about impact on them of the issue, then you've got to put them uh, in a program that, that helps them share their knowledge of what's going on in the community or in their block or in their home. And we are sharing knowledge on what the impacts could be and how they can address them. And so organizing them again um, to unify their voices to elected officials, to city hall, and to Congress. In addition to the work they do in Harlem, WE Act has recently opened an office in Washington, D.C., Peggy explains that having the office in the U.S. Capitol allows us to develop our grassroots campaigns in Harlem and understand the policies that need to change so that those impacts are not happening in Harlem and the Harlems of the world. But the issues of environmental justice are very critical in rural communities as well. For instance, uh, we coordinate an environmental justice leadership forum on climate change. So it's basically a coalition of 40 groups around the country in 19 states working on a whole variety 
of issues. Uh, some are in rural communities in South Carolina or Mississippi or in Ohio or West Virginia. We have Appalachian groups that are part of that forum as well because we realize that the impacts are not only on communities of color but on the lowest income communities as well. We know that in rural communities, for instance, we may not work on that issue, but we're advocates for the issue because we understand the different ways that these issues impact Indian country. Indian country is right there with so many of our American rural communities, and they have similar issues of extraction, of fracking, of mining. And what are those impacts on uh, Native Americans or rural Americans uh, living in poor communities. We know those are very serious impacts. Um, many folks out in the Arizona and Nevada areas were there when uh, nuclear testing was done. And to the you know disgrace of this country, we did that testing in rural areas where there were Native populations or you know other residents who were impacted. And so we've seen a large amount of cancers uh, in the Navajo and other uh, Indian tribes uh, who were out in the, uh, in the West in the nuclear testing age. We also have seen the issues of uh, contaminated water infrastructure in Flint, Michigan. But we've got contaminated well water throughout rural America where groundwater has been contaminated by mining. Or, uh, or other kinds of extraction. And again, uh, and fracking as well, that has contaminated the well water which many rural communities depend upon. I asked Peggy, how do you define the word environment? Yeah, you know, the environmental justice movement some years ago came up with a phrase that I hear almost everywhere now, even from government. And the environment is where we live, work, play, and go to school. It is all of those natural environment, it's our built environment, uh, it's our social environment. And those interactions are what either uh, lead to our well-being or to um, our negative mental and, and health issues as well. And what about climate justice? What is the connection between environmental justice and climate change? Yeah, you know, climate justice is not just a cool phrase for climate change. Climate justice really is focusing on the impacts of climate on the most vulnerable populations and communities in this country. So the communities that are uh, at waterfronts, at ocean fronts, those are the most vulnerable. And within those communities, the, the lowest income folks are even more vulnerable. As we saw in New Orleans post-Katrina, the poorest people did not have a credit card to go stay at a hotel. They did not have a car to escape to another state or another city. They were the ones who were being evacuated from rooftops and sitting in a stadium for nights and nights, weeks and weeks. Those voices were not heard in the planning. So one thing that REACT does is engage residents in the planning. Because if you had had low-income voices 
in New Orleans planning, they would have known that these people can't go to a hotel. They would have known maybe we need to have transit or buses or vans because people don't have cars to relocate. Um, so there would have been different options. Um, for instance, a city like New York City, where most people don't drive, you know, you would need to take that into account if you were uh, planning uh, evacuations. And so all of those elements of a city that sometimes only those who live in those neighborhoods understand, those voices need to be heard in planning for, for climate. So climate justice is really about understanding and addressing the impacts that are going to happen to the most vulnerable. Heat impacts will happen every year and they will get more severe. Sea level rises will be less often, but the sea level is continuously rising. And if you're at the waterfront like Alaska Natives, many Alaska Natives are already having to evacuate from the waterfront, um, which changes their whole lifestyle their historic legacy to the land and to sustainable fishing. For sustainable fishing and eating, they need to have quality waterfronts and uh, water that is not contaminated. With climate change comes extreme weather. We have seen the devastation brought about by the recent hurricanes. While the floods from Hurricane Harvey covered Houston and the news cycle, a story in California got buried. There was a record heat wave that hit San Francisco and the Bay Area. Usually temperate, San Francisco broke a record on September 1st. The temperature reached 41 degrees Celsius, or 106 degrees Fahrenheit. That is rare for the Bay Area and devastating. New York City, on the other hand, has had a history of heat waves. With climate change, it's only getting worse. I asked Peggy, what about extreme heat in New York City? We just had a research partnership with CUNY Grad Center, two other, a nonprofit and a city agency, to look at heat in Harlem. And so we were able to get 30 of our members to allow us to put temperature sensors in their apartments during last summer. And so those sensors were able to uh, tell us about the temperatures in those apartments, and something about humidity. And what we found was that because of the built environment um, in New York City, buildings hold in a lot of heat. So, you know, you might have a 90 degree daytime temperature, and at night it could go down to the 60s thing. But in certain buildings, it is not going down to 60. That heat is continuing to to, to burn within that building, if you may. And so the relief that you might get outdoors at night, you're not getting indoors. And because that heat is stored, the heat could actually be higher indoors than it is outside. And so what are people doing? Uh, the city has cooling centers that nobody goes to, that nobody can find, that may have given you the wrong address on a website. And people don't want to leave the security and perhaps the comfort of their home to go to some strange place, maybe 10 blocks away, where it could be empty, there could be no water or refreshments or television or anything to do. So the cooling centers haven't quite been the answer. The members who 
had the uh, sensors in their homes, were part of the study, felt that maybe the sensors could be linked up to the 311 city emergency system, which I thought was an interesting idea. The city already is like, yikes, no, no, no. <laughs> Um, because I think they realized they would be getting thousands of calls. We haven't come up with the solution yet, but we are exploring options, and we continue to work with our members and with our partners to ramp up and have a more robust study. During the recent San Francisco heat wave, six elderly people died of heat stroke. Reports state that none of them had air conditioning. In the aftermath of Hurricane Irma, six more seniors died in a Florida nursing home. They perished in rooms without air conditioning because of power outages. An inquiry has been launched to investigate if there was also neglect. Creating plans to protect the most vulnerable during extreme heat events is a climate justice issue. Back in the late 1980s, I attended City College in Harlem, New York. I lived on West 146th Street and remember seeing the monthly demonstrations on Riverside Drive organized by We Act for Environmental Justice. They stood to draw attention to problems the new sewage plant created for the community. They demanded action. It was my very first exposure to an environmental group, but I didn't get involved. I kept busy with my studies and my church. Years later, when I began focusing my work on climate change, I noticed that mainstream environmental organizations in the USA seem to mostly have white members and leaders. Over the past four years, I've sat in sessions where passionate white climate advocates want to know how to promote diversity and encourage people of color to join their groups. As we wrapped up the interview, I asked Peggy about this. Uh, I'd like to dispel the, the idea that um, people of color or low income are not interested in these issues. I think if you really look at the polls, it shows that people of color are at a higher rate of appreciation for the environment than other folks. And I would just say that um, even in a city like New York, you mentioned you went to City College. Well, you might have thought that the people living around City College and the Brownstones would be the people coming out on environmental issues, right? Um, They're more affluent and blah, blah, blah. But it's people in public housing. It's people who, um, yes, may be underemployed, may have a tougher road to go, but they are the ones receiving the worst impacts, and they know it. And when you can bring that to their attention and provide some leadership and support for their voices, they will come out and they will talk about those issues because they are looking to get them addressed. And when they understand that you have a concern and a care, they come out and they cooperate, they collaborate, and they make their voices heard and they get empowered to take control in other aspects of their lives and their communities. We're going to continue this conversation in the second half of the show. But first, I want to share with you something from a recent episode of Citizens Climate Radio. Each month, we have a puzzler question. This helps climate advocates practice their skills when faced with challenging questions. I want to end the first half of Spirit in Action with the following question and answer. 
You were chatting with an acquaintance, let's call him Larry. Somehow you got talking about windmills and the rapid advances in renewable technology. Larry's sympathetic, but bothered by something. He says, yeah, I get it, but these windmills, they look so ugly. I hate how they're ruining the countryside. Have you heard that before? <laughs> so what would you say to Larry? I received several responses, including the following voicemail. Hello, this is uh, Jonathan Abbott calling you from the from the UK, Peterson. Um, you wanted a response to Larry, and what would I say to him? I'd say to him, Larry, you're right to value beauty and oppose ugliness, but we get used to things. I was driving through Oklahoma in June, and I was struck by the sight of wind turbines next to an oil pump. You know, a pump jack. They're all over the, the West. Nodding donkey is another name for them. They seem to be useful. They're familiar, they're iconic, they're redolent of US industrial history. But are you really telling me that the elegant, silent, clean, modern turbine is, is somehow uglier than this noisy, smelly, dirty, wasteful bit of kit, which the pump jack is? It's not so great. Oklahoma now produces 28% of its power from wind and has the capacity to provide 10% of all U.S. energy. And this is the heart of Trump country, where people don't believe in climate change. They're not motivated mostly by the desire to reduce emissions. Like other states, its leaders see tapping the wind as an economic strategy. Wind energy is secure, it's clean, inexhaustible. The costs have plummeted in recent years. So even to the unromantic Midwesterner, even to you, Larry, and you might be a romantic, that is strangely beautiful. And I'm looking at a photograph of it now, and there it is, the nodding donkey and this beautiful array of wind turbines. Coming up in the next half of the show, we travel to Florida. I speak with another African-American woman concerned about climate justice. Dr. Beverly G. Ward sheds fresh light on hurricane preparations, evacuation, and equality. We also hear from singer-songwriter Anna Fritz, who uses a cello, her voice, and a great deal of passion to talk about the environment and justice. I also will share with you three powerful and beautiful books that explored what happened during Hurricane Katrina. All this coming up next in Spirit in Action. So much powerful news and important views from Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Sitting in for me, Mark helps meet for today's Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production at northernspiritradio.org. Rich with links and further info on our guests of the past 12 and a half years, all kinds of info like the list of stations carrying our shows and much, much more. Plus, a place to post comments, the quick way to make our communication two-way. Please post a comment when you visit and also consider clicking donate and helping Northern Spirit Radio thrive without funding from corporation, without funding from the government, just support from our listeners. But first, please start by supporting your local community radio station. Lift up your local voice with community radio. Make that a top priority because it makes all the difference to you and your neighbors. Remember, our media is becoming more and more concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, such that only six corporations now own over 90% of our media. 
If we're going to have a local voice, it's because you support local media like your local community radio station. Start there. Right now, back to Peterson, today's Spirit in Action host. Hello and welcome to the second half of Spirit in Action. I'm your guest host, Peterson Toscano, and this is a sample from my show, Citizens Climate Radio. My next guest lives in Tampa, Florida. While she describes herself as a policy wonk who researches transportation issues, she is also very passionate about the effects of climate change and about climate justice. Meet Dr. Beverly G. Ward. Born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, Beverly was aware of the American Civil Rights Movement from a young age. May of 1963, a famous march took place. It's called the Children's Crusade. And this is when the black public schools in Birmingham uh, were pretty much empty. Public schools, high schools, colleges. My mother and my teachers would not let me go. I was seven and sort of radicalized me, I would say, because it was like, I want to go march. Um, Beverly has a thirst for knowledge. For her undergraduate work, she studied psychology, film, and drama. She continued her studies and has a PhD in applied anthropology and public administration. At the University of South Florida, she has taught a variety of classes, including community sustainability and geographic information systems. And through her consulting company, Beverly conducts research and provides technical assistance to communities, local, state, and federal agencies. She is always looking at transportation systems. Who has access? Who doesn't? I met her at a Southeast regional gathering of Quakers where she serves as the field director for Earth Care. I asked Beverly about Florida and about climate change. I'll give you two examples. One is sunny day flooding. When there's high tides, the seawater will come in through the storm system into streets, neighborhood streets, and flood in the middle of the day. Uh, It tends to be low-income communities that are more affected than others. The response varies among cities. One city mayor decided that he was going to raise the street level, and once you get up to a certain height, the insurance company said, oh, you now have a basement. We don't insure basements in Florida. So that's not a real solution. <laughs> On the West Coast, the Gulf Coast, where I live, it's been documented already that the water in Tampa Bay has risen eight inches within the last decade. The person who looked at it, Kent Bailey, uh, the president of the Tampa Bay Sierra Club, didn't believe the numbers himself. So he had someone at USF Marine Sciences look at it and they said yes. And he had somebody else look at it and they said yes, this is true. Yeah, it's happening. We're, we're, you know, we're having flooding problems because the water, the water table is so high. The Florida aquifer is one of the most productive in the world, but it's being threatened by pollution from fertilizer, from golf courses, from big sugar, phosphate mining, and of course now the Sable Trail or and Southeast Transmission Pipeline, which is fracked natural gas coming to Florida, and we're quite sure it's not going to be used in Florida. Water is is a big issue in Florida, of course. We know we're going to lose the coastline. How do we make sensible decisions, such as not adding more lanes to the interstate, especially toll lane facilities? Toll roads limit who gets to use these highways. 
With Hurricane Irma, Florida Governor Rick Scott suspended tolls on roads to aid in the evacuation efforts. Even so, the task of moving so many Floridians north led to gas shortages and epic traffic jams. So, as we see bigger storms, is our response getting better? Since Hurricane Katrina struck in August 2005 and Hurricane Rita a month later, what have we learned? After Katrina, there was this national response framework that was handed down. And then when Hurricane Rita hit, they tried to evacuate and people, and it turned, the interstate turned into a parking lot. People ran out of gas. The army came in to refill the gas tanks and the nozzles wouldn't fit on the private automobiles. There were people who had autism or other conditions that they could not sit in a car for 12 hours on an interstate. If work had been done with, with that community, those parents, those people who are affected by the condition could have said, no, I can't do that. So maybe I need to shelter in place or here's where I'd like to shelter. When a big storm like Irma hits, the media and public watching from a distance has a habit of judging people who do not evacuate. Beverly explains that evacuation for some is not so easy. 10% of the households in the state of Florida are mobile homes. The counties require that when there's a tropical storm, they evacuate. And not everybody's able to evacuate. You talk about environmental justice, I'm talking like persons with disabilities, I'm talking low income, I'm talking ethnic and racial minorities, persons who live in zero vehicle households. If you don't have a car, how do you evacuate? If you do have a car, how old is the car? You know, these are the people who are most vulnerable, and these are social vulnerabilities. Beverly echoes something Peggy Shepard insists is essential in climate justice work and pre-disaster planning. It has to be bringing people to the table that are impacted. Nothing about us without us. You know, getting everybody to, to the table to address this. Beverly is a visionary person. When I asked her how she defines the word environment, she jumped ahead into the future with a spaceship analogy. She is working on the 1,000-year planning model. Forty generations from now, if humans are here, what's our vision? You know, what do we need to do to keep the spaceship in, in shape? How are we going to keep the air clean? How are we going to keep the water system clean? The food supply, what, what structures, what will last, what's not a good decision? How will these decisions be made? Do we have the right crew leaders in place? Do we have the right system in place for managing the spaceship? How do we get there? How do we get to the thousand-year place? What do we need to get there, and how do we start that now? There is much more to learn about environmental justice and how each community takes different approaches. I am grateful to our guest today for giving us helpful overviews and examples. If you want to dig deeper, I have a list of links to resources in our show notes. You can find these on the Citizens Climate Radio episode 16 page. How do you get there? easy. Just go to citizensclimatelobby.org, then scroll all the way to the bottom left. Under media, you will see Citizens Climate Radio. Click that link and you will find all the episode pages. 
In addition to articles, I have links to other podcasts, including Our Warm Regards. They just did an excellent show about environmental justice. Also, have a listen to episode six of our show and hear Dr. Natasha Dejanet talk about health risks and climate change. She explains how extreme weather events affect communities of color, seniors, and people with disabilities. And please share your resources with me and share your thoughts. My email is radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. The U.S. mainland and several Caribbean islands are still reeling from a series of hurricanes and tropical storms. Twelve years ago, after Hurricane Katrina slammed into New Orleans, a lot of research analyzed the evacuation, rescue, and recovery efforts. What went wrong? Who is to blame? What must we do differently in preparing for future storms? The suffering of those who survived Katrina and those who didn't also moved artists to take a deeper look. Using film, TV series, creative nonfiction, songs, and visual arts, artists have documented and explored what happened during and after Katrina. What first appeared to be a natural disaster soon turned into a man-made catastrophe. Residents in New Orleans experienced injustice and human rights abuses. In The Art House today, I share with you three very different books that artfully expose the tragedy in New Orleans during and after Hurricane Katrina. The first book is a graphic novel. This way of telling stories has become popular and mainstream over the past decade. Cartoonist Josh Newfield illustrates what happened to a handful of real-life people who survived the storm. The Los Angeles Times called Newfield's graphic novel a work of literature, of high art, and of reverence for nature and humanity. The book is called A.D. New Orleans, After the Deluge. By focusing on people from different ages, classes, ethnic, and racial backgrounds, Newfield reveals a diversity of experiences they faced. Here's a description of the five groups of people in the novel. Denise, a counselor and social worker and a sixth-generation New Orleanian. The doctor, a proud fixture of the French Quarter. Abbas and Drenel, two friends who faced the storm from Abbas's family-run market, Kwame, a pastor's son just entering his senior year of high school, and the young couple, Lou and Michelle, who both grew up in the city. The images are beautiful and powerful. The stories are compelling. Again, it's called A.D. New Orleans After the Deluge by Josh Newfield. It's published by Pantheon. The next book is nonfiction, written by Dave Eggers. He also looks at individuals to get a grasp of the much larger story of Katrina. In his book, Zaytoun, he follows a Syrian-American and his American-born wife and their children before, during, and after the storm. Eggers goes deep into the background of the Zaytoun family. The true story unfolds like an epic. It's inspiring, frustrating, shocking, and deeply moving. It is described as the true story of one family caught between America's two biggest policy disasters, the War on Terror and the response to Hurricane Katrina. The book is Zaytoun, that's spelled Z-E-I-T-O-U-N, by Dave Eggers. It's published by Vantage Books. Finally, I want to point you to a book of poetry by Patricia Smith. It's called Blood Dazzler. About the book and its author, the writer Mark Doty said the following, 
This riveting sequence gives voice to a wild, raw whirlwind that ruined a city and brought on, in turn, a storm of neglect and murderous indifference. With her radiant powers of empathy, her fiercely acute ear for the musical possibilities of American speech, and her undiluted rage, Patricia Smith makes in Katrina's wake a sorrowful, unflinching, and glorious book. That is Blood Dazzler by Patricia Smith. It's available through Coffee House Press. So, the three books that artfully and lovingly look back at the human stories of Hurricane Katrina are A.D. New Orleans, After the Deluge by Josh Newfield, Zaytoon by Dave Eggers, and Blood Dazzler by Patricia Smith. You can get them wherever books are sold. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. I'm thrilled to introduce you to singer-songwriter Anna Fritz. On a very windy day at a Quaker conference in Niagara Falls, New York, I sat down with Anna to hear about her unique approach to folk music. Instead of a guitar, Anna accompanies herself with a cello, an instrument that she's been playing since she was six years old. Accompanied by the wind, Anna talks about her music, and she shares some songs for us, from her most recent album. planet I think it partly comes from being orphaned being people that don't have a connection to a land base it used to be that people lived very close to the land and had a very intimate relationship with the earth that sustains them and that connection has been severed in a lot of different ways and in some cases forcibly like in the case of Native Americans I've written some songs that that address that, that, that speak to that wound. And so I think partly by healing that wound and reconnecting to a land base that we recover our love and our desire, our fierce desire to protect the land that we're connected to. And I think that's also, that's a, a great place to be coming from when you're doing actions, to be coming from a place of fierce love. So Lay Down My Burden is really trying to reconcile my own feelings of 
not having an attachment to a land base, not having a, a specific land that is like the land of my people. And then also being conflicted about um, being a white person and being descended from people that forcibly took other people from their land and trying to reconcile, like, how do I be in right relationship to this land and to the people who have been, who have had it stolen from them? And that song also calls on the ancestors to help guide us as we're grappling with these questions. I ask for a story of my people from long ago across the water don't know just where I come from aching for a knowledge of the way longing for belonging for the teachings of a people of a land for an ancient way of knowing I lay down my burden on the bank of the river I step into the
I feel like part of my work now is is inspiring people to join us, helping to take someone who at, at this point is willing to make a phone call or write a letter and turn them into somebody who is willing to lock themselves to some train tracks. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm writing music that I'm hoping can inspire that putting myself in situations where I can give that to people. Through her website, you can learn more about Anna, see videos of her performing, and get info on how to purchase her music or book her for a concert. Just visit AnnaFritz.com. Anna is spelled with two N's, A-N-N-A, Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z. That's AnnaFritz.com get a link at our blog post for this episode, visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. I'm going to end today's show with some thoughts about climate change. I don't know about you, but I am curious about global warming. Sure, it alarms me, but it also fascinates me. I think about the time in which we live, where we are in history right now. Yes, it's frustrating and at times terrifying, but it is also an incredible opportunity to take a serious look at our world and how we live in it. Beyond simply being good citizens, we have the opportunity to change systems. Part of that work requires listening deeply to voices that for too long have been silenced and ignored. I have to admit that for the longest time, I was not engaged in climate action. I figured I had other more pressing issues I needed to address. I'm an activist around lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer rights. Seeing so many struggles still in the U.S. and beyond, I felt I had enough on my plate. But then something happened. Through a series of events, I began to shift the way I saw climate change. It's not simply an environmental issue. It's not just something for scientists to discuss. It's an issue that affects human rights and social justice. I began to look deeper into it and even began to see how climate change affects lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. If you like, I can talk about that in a future show. What I've begun to realize is that with climate change, we all already have skin in the game. Whatever your passion is, human rights, animal welfare, homelessness, coffee, skiing, or a million other things. Climate change affects each of our passions. We don't have to give up one issue to pursue a new one. We can take our growing awareness of climate change to deepen the work we are doing. 
we can become skilled in talking about climate change in connection to our deepest passions and concerns. As the guest host of Spirit in Action and the regular host of Citizens Climate Radio, I want to hear from you. What would you like me to discuss on this show? What guest would you like me to bring onto the program? You can contact me via email. Send your message to radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. And thank you for listening to this episode of Spirit in Action. And thank you for letting me be the co-host today, Mark. All the music I used uh, is licensed unless otherwise specified. If you want to hear more of my program, check out Citizens Climate Radio at northernspiritradio.org. Learn more about Citizens Climate Lobby at citizensclimate.org. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. And a great big thanks to you, Peterson Toscano, for filling in for me today and for all of your great work. It takes a community to make powerful local media and a good radio program. And I'm so thankful for our guests, co-hosts, and the Northern Spirit Radio Board, and for all of you listeners. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice